And all, all of your cows here, they've all got um, yellow tags in their ears. Tell us about the, these yellow, t- yellow tags. Yeah, so all, all cattle in the UK um, have to have official official government tags. So they need, they need two tags, secondary tag, primary tag. Um, on the tag, they have our UK number, which is our herd number. Um, and then the individual cattle number, so that's for traceability, so we know exactly where that animal's been, what it's done. They all have their own individual passport off the back of that. Um, all that data on there is, is stored on a, that's an electronic ear tag that we use here, so they goes through an electronic reader and that will flag up on my laptop all medical treatments they've had, the ages, their weights, um, all, all the data that we're recording is... So it's almost like a digital medical, pas- medical passport in a sense, I suppose. Yeah, it is. It just, it just really... Ha- it, it, it's there for traceability. You are listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on food production. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and this episode of The Standard Show is episode two of our series Farm to Fork, exploring the relationship between standards and food, in which we are looking at food production. Now, before you listen, I just want to let you know that we have crammed so much content into this episode that to make things easier to digest, we have split it into two parts. When you've finished enjoying this part one, you can also find part two in the podcast feed. Now, at numerous times in part one of this episode, we refer to cows. When strictly speaking, we should have been saying cows and bulls. So, uh, what you got, what you got here? We got a pistachio. What's that? Raspberry. Pistachio, rosewater, and raspberry. That looks really good. Then we have a fig, fig orange, orange, cardamom. Yeah, and then uh, vegan spicy. That looks good. Carrot oh, cake. Spice pumpkin. Spicoon. And then uh, vegan lemon and blueberry. And then oh, the red velvet. Red velvet. Red, mm. What do you think then? I was so set on having the red velvet cake, but I think I want a slice of the pistachio raspberry rosewater cake. What about yourself? That sounds good. Well, unfortunately, they haven't got the Guinness cake no. that I thought they might have, but that, that spiced pumpkin pecan looks good. Yep. Um, but actually, I think I'm going to go vegan lemon and blueberry. Mm. Yeah? Good job. Come on, let's do it. Hi. Hiya. Hi. Could I get an, uh, um, an espresso? Single shot or double shot? Single shot. And a slice of the pistachio rosewater raspberry cake, please. And are the, um, just get an English breakfast tea? Do you have any soy milk? Yep, but yep. the soy milk curd also. I'll a bit of oat milk then, so okay. <laughs> and uh, and uh, a slice of the vegan? Uh, vegan this. Yeah. Oh no, no, the vegan, no. no, the vegan lemon and blueberry. blueberry. Yeah, oh, there was two vegans, I didn't notice that actually. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna park ourselves by the, uh, the, the yeah. piano, is that okay? Where are we, Cindy Parakil? Well, Matthew Charles, we've made it. We are at the To Love Tea and Coffee House in London's Battersea, just down the road from Clapham Junction. And we are having our tea and cake. Well, (laughs) coffee and cake. Coffee for you, yes. We finally made it. Now, I mentioned last time on the last episode uh, in this series, well, I speculated Mm -hmm. that there are about 50 black teas on the wall behind the counter there. Now, I can confirm there are, in fact, 22 but nearly 70 in total. Oh, wow. And what you just heard was us ordering tea and coffee and cake and the sound of my indecision <laughs> of which cake to choose. Something I had mentioned in the last episode that I was prone to. In fact, I even confused myself how many vegan options there were. There but were I, two. I did finally make my decision. So, Cindy, your pistachio, raspberry and rosewater cake, that looks good. It does. And I can't wait to tuck in. Your vegan lemon and blueberry cake looks really good too. It does. It looks very good indeed. The cakes are are really excellent here. Yeah. Now, we are out having tea, coffee and cake. I'm basing ourselves here at the To Love Tea and Coffee House because this is Farm to Fork, our series on the relationship between standards and food. Now, in this series, our menu of episodes is loosely following the food cycle of food production, packaging, distribution, consumption and waste management, and also featuring some of the key standards involved in each of them. And in this episode, we're looking at food production. Playing us in at the top of the episode was the voice of Dan Burling, Cambridgeshire beef farmer, talking about his cows and the important issue of traceability. In this episode, we'll hear more from Dan and his lovely cows, and also from John Royal and Harriet Henrik, 
policy advisors at the National Farmers Union, talking about livestock farming, productivity, sustainability and digital transformation. We'll also hear from Tom Hollins from Rainer Foods and Jason Cresswell from an organization called Sweetbridge about an initiative called the Digital Sandwich. This is something that may eventually lead us to knowing whether or not the beef in a real sandwich was one from Dan's farm and even what side of the field it grazed on. Yes, the digital sandwich brings a whole new meaning to the phrase having a bite to eat. <laughs> B-Y-T-E. Yes, very good. I know you like that. <laughs> now in this episode, we'll also hit look at the issue of safe food with food quality management expert Amanda McCarthy and in particular about the standard ISO 22000 for food safety management and her close personal association with this standard since 2005 and how she quite literally stumbled into standards. <laughs> and we finish with Alexander Troutrims, an academic and standards maker from Nottingham University and expert in supply chain and procurement and the topic of modern slavery in supply chains. We speak to him about the standard BS27500, organizational responses to the issue of modern slavery. Now, throughout the Farm to Fork series and this episode, we are of course exploring the role of standards. Here's Sarah Walton from BSI to tell us more about standards and food production. Hi, my name is Sarah Walton and I head up the food sector at BSI. Digitalization is already having a transformative effect on supply chains across all sectors, improving efficiency and transparency, reducing cost and boosting sustainability. Whilst it's doing that, digitalization is also helping create conditions for much more resilient business practices. And this is as much true for the food industry as it is for any other sector. The digital and on online changes in methods of purchase and delivery, which have been predicted in the food chain for some time, have been advanced much more quickly by factors like the COVID pandemic. As a result, for now and for the near future, it seems that the food sector offers arguably some of the greatest opportunities for transformation. Digitalization of food supply chains requires the use of existing technologies alongside the development of new ones. But it's not just about the new tech. Food production relies on looking after the workforce too. Millions of people around the world are employed in the food economy and they deserve to work in good conditions. And this is where standards come in. And it's why food is one of BSI's key sectors for standards development. In the agri-food sector, standards help businesses, entrepreneurs and innovators to grow their ideas and their organizations, to take advantage of new technologies and to protect their employees. And also to achieve important public policy objectives like supporting the agri-food sector to transition to net zero. And while standards can help to reassure the public about the food they're eating, at the same time, they can help to reassure them that sustainable action is also being taken in order to produce it. Standards therefore provide a way for everyone to agree on what good looks like. A quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. Now, Cindy, we joked, hadn't we, in episode one of this series that this episode will be where The Standard Show meets BBC Radio 4's Farming Today. Yes. <laughs> so what better place to start than down on the farm? And more specifically, Dan Burling's chain farm in Cambridgeshire and his cows. Yes, the farm is run by Dan and his brother Stuart and has been in their family for five generations. It's a mixed arable and livestock farm covering around 3,000 hectares. They have 700 cows of the stabilizer breed, which to those of you who are wondering is a pretty big number really, considering that the average number of cows on UK farms is only 26. Now, when we went on our little field trip, it was a pretty windy day, and despite our best efforts to minimise it, some of the recording does pick that up. But we start outside the farm, and with me being a little bit mean about what Cindy is wearing on her feet. Yes, we do. First things first, Cindy, what are you wearing on your feet? Well, I've come prepared for a little excursion today, and I'm wearing my brand new wellies. 
Well, is they may be, but I think they're a bit more than that. You better tell everyone. You better tell everyone the make of these particular wellies. They're hunter boots. I've been wanting a pair for a while. Now, when you got these, when you got out of the car, I half expected them to be a sort of bright garish colour, but actually they're quite classy, aren't they? Yes, I've gone for black, and I see you've also gone for black, though I must say yours are quite muddy. <laughs> muddy, muddy as they should be, as well as should be. Yeah, they're caked in mud. These are my old trusty Dunlops, which I've had for, oh, goodness knows how many years. And I never miss a chance to wear wellies, because I do like wearing wellies. Now, we are wearing wellies, Cindy in her fantastic hunter boots, as she calls them, because we are... We are outside Chain Farm in rural Cambridgeshire and we are here to meet three people. We're here to meet Dan Burling, who's the beef farmer who runs the farm here at Chain Farm. And we're also here to meet John Royal and Harriet Henrik from the National Farmers Union. And we're here to meet the cows. Shall we go in? Let's do it. Tell us about this, uh, this breed here, Dan, what is it? Yeah, so the breed is uh, called Stabilizer and that's a, it's a composite breed which means it's a breed which is made up of other breeds um, with a view to increasing hybrid vigour. Um, and the reason it's called a stabiliser because the, the idea is to, to stabilise the crossbreeding programme. Um, so you end up with... Um, it, it's a lot more efficient than a purebred system. This versus a purebred system, it, it, it was proven in the States that you'd you'd end up with about 23% more kilos of beef with this breeding system versus a purebred system. So that's why we do it. So it's developed in, developed in the States in the 70s um, at the Clay Research Center in Nebraska. Um, it was originally called the Mark II, this was, which is a, a, a breed makeup of uh, two continental breeds, two uh, native breeds. Um, they're all ranked on economic traits um, so they've got about 20 different traits there uh, recorded for, that we, we record for, and everyone in the States, Australia, and the other stabiliser breeds in this, co this country um, selects on. That goes into one big global index, and it pushes out a figure, uh, several figures at the end for these bulls. Um, so they essentially, we're selecting on a pound profit figure at the end. Um, and that pound profit figure is made up of a whole selection of economic traits um, and that is run through some partial budgets and it estimates how much more profitable that animal will be over another animal and that's what we're selecting on. And how, how common a breed is this in the UK? Yeah, it's, it's pretty popular now. Um, it's pretty popular now. It's been the fastest growing breed in the UK for, for, for some years. Um, it's it's got a lot of traction because it's they're they're easy care, um, they're easy easy carving, they're very functional, they're they're very robust. I mean we use them because we're grazing a lot of RSPB floodplains and washland, which is very very hard work for cows with calves to cope with, um, and they they do very well on. They do very well in that environment, so they don't need top quality grass. So we're, so we're utilizing we're utilizing land that wouldn't be able to put be put into any other kind of food production. So it's all rough, it's all rough uh, fibrous grazing. And is it this the only type of cattle that you have in this farm? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, we we started off with continental breeds when I came back to the farm, probably about 12, 12 years ago now. Um, and we tried one of these stabiliser bulls versus um, some Charolais and Limousins that we had on farm and um, after the first year of carving with them I just, just decided to switch. It was, it was just the system made sense. And you said it's a, it's a popular breed but in terms of, you know, in terms of people eating this, this particular meat, what proportion would it make up of, of what the meat is consumed in the UK? Uh, that's that's hard to, that's hard to say um, th there's no there's no direct outlet specifically for stabilizer beef as it is so it'll just it'll just be run into run into retailers um, and and food services through 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 standard processes um, there is a there is a scheme actually through um, Morrison's and Morrison's have um, pushed quite hard with the with the breed because it's environmental credentials um, so we so we so we use genomic testing to, to to look at the various traits of the animals and and when we ran that through 
our uh, carbon calculator, we, we came to the conclusion versus UK average beef figures that we're around 40% with this system, a full stabilised system, 40% more carbon efficient than UK average. So, 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 so supermarkets like um, Morrison's who have um, put a pledge in to be net zero um, are pretty keen on on this kind of thing. I mean, in terms of in terms of the um, other credentials with it that that, that make it good, it's um, it, it's a high eating quality beef. So we're 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 selecting. There's there's a selection in the index for intramuscular fat and ribeye area, muscle depth and fat depth. Um, so we're so we're so we're so we're selecting based on a on an eating quality standard. We, we will ultrasound scan. Well, we're doing that tomorrow. Ultrasound scan. All the bulls and the heifers to give them a score on that. So, that, so we finish all these as um, we finish these as, as bulls. So we keep them entire. So there's no there's no castration. Um, it just means they use their natural hormones to that they'll they'll finish a lot quicker. And with, with this particular breed, what you, what you normally struggle with bulls is that you can't they, they get too too they remain too lean so they they lose eating quality and they get a bit stressed out because they're because they're in, they're still entire but with this breed are, are very docile they're, they're specifically um selected for docility they are they're, they're really funny yeah, they're, ga so they're gathering around us now and taking a real keen interest in they us are, and I mean, I'm, I'm I'm I'll, I'll get in there and sit on the floor if you want and they don't they don't they don't they don't do anything Cindy, if you want to get in there and sit <laughs> yeah, on the floor then, then uh, the that'd floor. be great you've got your new wellies on so yeah. uh you can get in there and do that yeah yeah how, how old how old are these ones at they're, the moment they're just so they're just they're 12 months old so the, the target is um, to get them to 650 kilos live weight at 13 months and at that point they're ready to go so so that that's a that's a big help with reducing carbon footprint because you're you're finishing animals a lot a lot quicker so i think i think the uk average is around 27 months to finish to finish beef which means they're on the planet for a long time which means they're producing a lot more methane all the time so so finishing them in this system um is a lot more efficient. I don't think I've ever. It's a, <laughs> incredibly friendly. It's like having a, a a group of sort of dogs around you. They're all taking a real interest. Yeah, in this. I've never yeah. experienced this before. Yeah, so when you friendly. when you say they're, they're they're nearly ready, we're here in in Cambridgeshire. Where will they go next? What happens to them after after they um, leave you? So th these will probably be destined this year to go to um, to a processor in Bedford, um, Dunbeer, um, and then they'll make their way to to various retailers. Um, from that, I mean, some some of these will be breeding bulls. So, so when we when we scan them tomorrow, we ultrasound scan them tomorrow. We'll measure their scrotal circumference tomorrow, which is exciting. Um, and we'll weigh them, <laughs> and and score their feet. And off the back of that, um, with the with the other genomic data we've already got, we will make a selection on which ones are potentially move into the breeding herd or get sold as, as breeding animals there's, there's I think 35 in here I've already pre-selected through genomic testing so we'll we'll run them through tomorrow and see if they I, I've got to ask given that you mentioned scrotal circumference what what is a good scrotal circumference um, a good scrotal circumference is we can't the, the the breed minimum is 34 centimeters at 12 months old so we can't breed from that um, but there's the the older bulls a lot of the older bulls will be 45. 40 centimetres plus. So the, the larger the scrotal circumference, the better. It means they're more fertile. Um, it means they're going to get more cows and calf in a shorter period of time. And it actually has a direct correlation to how early maturing their daughters are. And because the daughters here are calving early compared to a lot of people, and they need to reach puberty at an earlier age, so scrotal circumference helps with that. And all, all of your cows here, they've all got um, yellow tags in their ears. Tell us about the, these yellow, t yellow tags. Yeah, so all, all cattle in the UK um, have to have official official government tags. So they need, they need two tags, secondary tag, primary tag. Um, on the tag, they have our UK number, which is our herd number, um, and then the individual cattle number. So that's for traceability, so we know exactly where that animal's been, what it's done. They all have their own individual passport off the back of that. Um, all that data on there is, is stored on a, that's an electronic ear tag that we use here. So they goes through an electronic reader and that will flag up on my laptop 
all medical treatments they've had, their ages, their weights, um, all, all the data that we're recording is. So it's almost like a digital up. medical pass, medical passport in a sense, I suppose. Yeah, it is. It just, it just really, ha- it, it, it's there for traceability. And that that tagging that literally takes place as they're born, as yeah, they're as, as they're born. Um, and at the same time, um, when I tag them with my tagging tagging gun, it takes a DNA sample from one ear. Um, and another another tissue sample from another another ear. So that one of the tissue samples is sent off to uh, some labs in Scotland to look for various diseases we kind of try and keep track of, like BVD, which is um, which, which is an important one to keep track of. Um, and then the other tag is is a is a tissue tag that goes to the states, and then they are looking they look for genetic markers for the various traits we're looking at. Another another thing we're doing is. Um, we are we're doing embryo transfer so so some of the technical stuff that i really enjoy on farm is based on the genetic side so so that so that bull there is um a u.s embryo so we'll import about 30 um embryos a year to, to that's where we get our different bloodlines from so we don't get any inbreeding um and we've started to use genomically selected sexed ivf produced embryos so we can end up getting the getting the top ranking uh dams and sires on the index um and we're, we're utilizing those into herding and that will bring our breeding bulls from so that that's a really interesting side of it so the embryo implant side is is, is really good you mentioned about some of the technology that's sort of tagging we're talking about there just wonder any other big sort of technological changes in terms of digital systems that the that the farm is using or, or in the sector how are they influencing your work as a farmer uh, we, we, we try to stay ahead of the curve on stuff like that. Um, as I say, we've got the electronic tags here. We've, we've been trialling the other tags, which are, which are monitoring temperature and, and movement to, to try and reduce antibiotic use. Um, we, we, we will use computer systems as much as we can to run through the data. Um, there's we, we also we also some of these breeding bulls will go on a on a trial where they're using net feed efficiency um, uh, f- feeders so they're they're super sensitive feeders that will use their electronic tags which will measure measure when the bull goes in to eat some food it'll measure exactly how many grams of food is eaten in that mouthful um, and compare it to all his peers in that group um, and then you'll weigh the bull and you'll see which animal has eaten less to get to the same weight and therefore it's a more feed efficient bull. So we, we've, we've, we've had an increase in about 20% in feed efficiency so, so we, that's a 20% reduction in cost and 20% reduction in use of uh, resources as well. I could just see a little, a, a little calf over that looks very, very cute. Yes, how, old, how old is he or she? Yeah, so there's, there's two in this pen. Both of them were premature. So the red one sitting down there. Oh my God, the small. Oh, the, God, the, sorry, the red so one. The, yeah, the the red one was born in February, a good um, two months before we should have started calving. Um, luckily, I saw it being born straight away. Um, it, it, it's actually a real miracle that it's made actually made it because that's very premature. Um, it was only 12 kilos when it was born. Um, our normal birth weight is is 30 you know about about 35 kilos on average um across across males and females um so it went straight into a dog bed had a heated blanket on it went into my mum's kitchen lived in mum's kitchen until about a fortnight ago until it started jumping over the kitchen table and we were bottle feeding it um and my daughter's called it Maisie which is why it's got Maisie written on its ear tag um, so that's probably going to end up being a pet cow. I was about to say, I, I, all I want to do is go over there and cuddle it, feel, if I'm really on C- Really? She will, she will more than and, enjoy. And the, there's an even smaller one well, that, at the that back. Is, that is another premature one um, that we've refrained from. Not as premature, so it didn't go and live in a house. Um, but uh, yeah, that's another early one that we're that we're bottle feeding at the moment. And that doesn't have a name yet then? Uh, that one is called Midnight. <laughs> Midnight, I mean, I'm gonna have, we're gonna have to walk around and have, have a closer look at these two. So Maisie and Midnight. Harriet, you beat, you beat me to it, you got there first. Oh, look at that. I don't think she might, she might come across and say hello to me. 
she's beautiful. absolutely beautiful, isn't she? Sort of, what colour would you say that was? Sort of ca chestnut, so light chestnut colour. Absolutely. And the one behind, Midnight, looks like a little dog. Yes. Oh, wow. How cute and friendly were those cows. Dan was lucky that we didn't try and smuggle one out. I know. They were so docile. I, I know that Dan explained that that was one of the key characteristics mm -hmm. of the stabilizers breed, you know, their docility. Yeah. But they really did act like domestic animals. It was like a family pet. It was amazing. Now, Matthew, I thought it was really interesting what Dan was saying about how he really enjoyed using technology and science to help with the breeding of his cows. He said um, it allowed him to really exploit the efficiencies and sustainable performance of that particular breed of cattle, or the credentials, as Dan referred to it. That's true. And talking about breeding, mm -hmm. we also got in a reference there to scrotal circumference. <laughs> now, I never thought I'd be talking about scrotal circumference on a podcast. I'm just glad he didn't offer to give us a practical measurement demonstration. <laughs> uh, yeah, that may have been a step too far. I agree. So after we left Dan and his lovely cows, we retired to a relatively quiet barn to have a chat with John Royal and Harriet Henrik from the National Farmers Union, or the NFU, to talk about some of the things we'd spoken about with Dan, including sustainability, productivity and traceability. Though in the background, you'll also hear Dan getting on with his farming. The NFU represents more than 46,000 farming and growing businesses. Harriet is Livestock Advisor and John Royal is Chief Livestock Advisor for the NFU. They are responsible for representing the interests of beef and sheep members on a wide range of policy issues. We started by asking Harriet and John about some of the changes taking place in the livestock industry and the issue of sustainable production. I think it's really important that we sort of encourage our industry to sort of drive to be more productive, you know, use our resources as efficiently as possible. So in this part of the world, it's, it's certainly, you know, more drier part of England, isn't it? So, you know, for Dan, it's about managing his grazing and not overgrazing and utilising some of those, um, you know, those wetland areas that are part of the RSPCB. All of that sort of stuff where livestock could be part of the overall farming picture. Um, you know, and utilising some of the manures that you get from livestock, so we're less reliant on purchased chemical fertiliser. So, but I think as well is is the overall story that we want to try and tell of UK red meat production is that it's sustainable. You know, don't feel guilty about eating a piece of steak. If you're going to eat steak, eat it from the UK because you know, in terms of our emissions, we're we're far far lower than anywhere else in the world. And it's not just about emissions; it's it's the quality. It's the use of, you know, farm medicines, the animal welfare. You know, we're pretty good at what we do. And, and the biodiversity and habitat Absolutely, that comes yeah. with it. You know, uh, Dan grazes his cows on, on the wetlands. That's not just good for, for his cows, but actually that's good for the birds that are around as well. Uh, you get bats from the dung flies, etc. It's just that circular sort of, um, I guess, economy that we need mm. to appreciate. In terms of... Uh, you mentioned earlier about sort of, sort of productivity uh, issues that sort of Dan was facing. Just what else? Could you talk us through some other areas about how farms in the UK, particularly um, in producing protein and meat industry, what other areas they're looking at in order to become more productive? First of all, we're looking at genetics. So you heard a lot today about how you breed an animal that is more efficient. So how can it convert a smaller amount of food into meat, saleable meat, so the animal finishes at a, a carcass weight and at an age um, so it eats less, finishes younger, on the planet less, therefore emitting less methane. Um, so that is an efficient animal. So genetics has a huge part to play. So our, our, our pedigree industry, which provide... So we have lots of different breeds, all have different attributes, shall we say. Um, and each one will sort of grow at different, uh, different times, probably... Uh, sorry, different rates, uh, consume more or less feed... Some might produce better on forage rather than a cereal-based diet. So genetics is a really important thing. The next thing would be around animal health, so improving the health of the animal. So if there's less underlying disease in the animal, so particularly around respiratory disease for beef cattle, um, if they get a touch of pneumonia, um, that limits the potential for that animal to grow at the same speed as it would do. So a real focus on animal health, um, so that means vaccinating animals for certain diseases that may be present so we, we focus a lot on that as well. 
Yeah, and then I guess it's going to be things like forage production and nutrient management on farms. So uh, people should be out there soil testing so that they make sure that um, their land is is capable of achieving the best of what it needs to do. So it has all the right uh, nutrients and, and levels there. Um, same with their forage. They can be testing their forage to make sure that their cattle are getting the best. Uh, and, and we're seeing a lot of people moving to sort of uh, mob grazing or or sort of standard grazing so that it's it's more of it's going more towards uh, uh, sort of having a shorter period of time on a piece of ground and then moving on quickly to allow that ground to regenerate um, with the manure from the cattle but also from the ground itself um, so uh, we're seeing lots of people use uh, electric fences or even electric collars to to do that and and um, and it, it just makes them more efficient in the end but you can see as well, it, you know, it takes a significant amount of investment to become mm -hmm. a really productive farm. Mm -hmm. So here, for example, you know, Dan is investing in new buildings. So new buildings mean that he can, you know, run lots of animals with reduced labour. Um, the buildings are designed that, you know, you get really good airflow, so you get less problems in terms of, you know, respiratory problems, respiratory disease, because the air becomes stale. So you know, putting a new building up is, is quite expensive. So you've got to generate profit from your business to be able to reinvest into your business. So it's a real challenge for many. Yeah, I think as well, if, you, if you're a livestock producer producing beef and lamb, I think we're always concerned about consumer attitudes towards our products. So, you know, there's been, you know, particularly with younger people, you know, the marketing of, of alternatives, meat alternatives, um, and even potentially in the future, you know, synthetic meat, you know, where is livestock production, you know, going to fit in five, ten years, twenty years' time when there are other protein sources out there available? So, I think we spend a lot of time, and expect people like the NFU to spend some time, is defending the industry to say, actually, livestock production in a country like ours, where we have water, naturally produce lots of forage, we're doing it in a really sustainable way that's good for biodiversity. Actually, it's a really good way of converting you know, grass into really valuable protein that actually tastes pretty damn good. So I think, you know, defending the reputation of the industry is becoming harder and harder and more and more important for, for organisations like the NFU uh, and acting on, on the NFU's behalf. Um, so clearly we, we know now that, you know, consumer looks at labels and thinks, why are we, you know, are we buying on price? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, you know, we're seeing some food inflation. So clearly that is the biggest driver in terms of consumer choices. But actually what we're seeing now is consumers thinking, actually, you know, sustainability, climate impact, welfare, is it safe? Is it British? These are all important things that standards about the product, they probably, and this may, you may be interested in really, is that they don't really understand the standards that sit below and how that product came to the market, came to that supermarket shelf. They just assume someone's caring and looking after that. Um, so I guess really they look for, for us, is that we want to say to the consumer, look for British because you can trust it. Look for the red tractor because it shows that the animal is farmed to certain standards, farmed with care, etc., etc. So I think many of our farmers are concerned about that. You know, they're, they're thinking down the track, where does really red meat sit within the consumer's diet? Yeah. Has that changed actually because like more consumers are now considering um, alternatives as you mentioned. Has that change in taste impacted the industry thus far? Um, probably not. So I think we just accept that yeah. a country you know, like the UK and Europe, we're probably meeting, we're probably getting to the point where it's meat, uh, peak meat consumption, shall we say. So despite us, you know, in terms of population growth increasing, the demand for red meat in Europe is going to peak and it might peak in, say, five, ten years' time. It's the developing world is where they have got climatic conditions, so they probably can't produce red meat, which the consumer demands because you're going to see more middle classes, more people moving into cities. Some may want a bit more of a Western diet, so they're looking to certain countries around the world that can produce them or provide them at the right price, at the right quality, red meat, protein, it may even be pork, poultry meat. So that global demand for protein isn't slowing down, it's increasing. So, you know, we're saying to our members, actually, we've got a really big part to play here because we're producing not commodity product, but a high quality product that may be, you know, be more expensive on some of those export markets than some other products. But actually, the consumer 
in these other markets is still prepared to buy into that because they trust food quality, food safety, and the standards that we stand for in the UK. It, it was interesting, sorry, as well, throughout the pandemic. I mean, we've been seeing that slow downtick yeah, of, did, of yeah, red meat true. sort of buying. And actually, throughout the pandemic, we saw a real increase uh, in, in meat sales throughout retail. Um, and, and I know, obviously, we, everyone went up in retail because um, retail's all you could have. Uh, but it was interesting to see that when people were worried about their health, when we were in this middle of this horrific situation that nobody ever would have thought actually people went back to cooking red meat because that's what they felt safe and healthy in doing and I think that's a really really strong message for for our industry that actually people trust that and so yeah that's yeah, a real that's confidence boost yeah it's interesting isn't it we've, obviously we've talked about uh, the processes that are that, that Dana uses and other farmers use to actually produce the, the product but obviously the perception of that product and the changes in consumer behavior are obviously massively important you described mm. you know how how the work that you do is sort of defending or promoting the quality of the product. I just wonder, given those changes, and I, the reason I mentioned this is I spoke recently to a cult, someone involved in cultivated meat, mm. and I think uh, their view was was that these, these can coexist in the market. You know, there is a not that it will help each other, but there is room for both. I just wonder whether you feel with those sort of innovations that are taking place, that will d- just drive up quality of, of the of the meat that's being produced. Yeah, I think the quality of, of UK meat is, is pretty good now. You know, you rarely go to a, a British retailer and have a poor piece of meat, particularly it's British, I'd like to say. It's, it's always going to be pretty good quality. You know, we pride ourselves in, you know, breeding the animals that produce a really good product. Um, so I think in terms of if you're buying into, you know, a core piece of meat like, like a joint or a steak, that can't be replicated, we don't believe, in a synthetic product. So that product is probably going to be into your um, into your beef burgers, into your mince, uh, probably poultry meat first, I would suggest. So it's not going to have that sort of flavour of you know of an animal produced you know grazing on our PCB marshes. Uh, so just um, going back to the point about productivity, digi- uh, digital technologies have transformed sectors. So I wanted to get your insights on how um, digital technology has affected um, the farming industry and also supply chains? So let's start with the simple bit, which is in terms of um, livestock traceability. So we saw ear tags in, in cows today. So, um, you know, when an animal is born here, it's reg- registered electronically onto a national database. So the, the individual animal, its identification is agreed on this farm and that stays with the animal until it is processed. So we have full digitization effectively of that animal's traceability. It even gets a little passport. So every time that animal moves from farm to farm, if it does, um, it goes with that piece of paper. So we know exactly, as a digital record, where that animal has gone throughout its life until it arrives at the licensed meat processing premises. It's been, the part of the animal is given a number. So again, you can trace that animal all the way through. And, and many of our retailers, uh, processors now are also taking DNA samples to sort of confirm that that animal, if it's Aberdeen Angus, it is Aberdeen Angus. So you could actually, in theory, trace a piece of meat all the way back down the supply chain to the farm. So in terms of the regulatory bit, to trace the animal that piece of, through to a piece of meat is, is there and really well established in the UK. What we also find is that a farm like Dan thrives on data. He needs to know which are the best performing animals. And, and he'll be doing lots of things to measure the performance of that animal. So he'll be weighing those animals regularly in terms of what is their growth rate according to their age. And he'll be recording that information according to their, the animal's identification. And, and he'll have what's called KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, that he'll be sort of saying, well, I only want to breed from those best-performing animals. So it's all about data. So it's him understanding, um, you know, where I need to invest, what genetics are best for me, what's affecting an animal's performance. So it may be an animal health issue that he's had okay I need to resolve that animal health issue because that is effectively slowed that animal's growth by two or three weeks because it had a a slight episode of a respiratory problem like a cold for example so yeah all all farmers in the UK now are starting to adopt uh, farm software package systems where they they analyse a lot more data about the animals and crops that they're producing. But in terms of livestock traceability, we have, you know, a, a very good system compared yeah, to worldwide. And, and there are certainly a lot of other countries that, that wouldn't 
individually tag wouldn't wouldn't be able to have that that traceability from farm to fork and and so i think as as a country that should be something we're very proud of so we'd know exactly how many animals we've got in the uk literally their date of birth their mother's name their father's name food safety and productivity have got to be the two major things driving you know uh, people creating data at the end of the day and and managing that because retailers want to know where everything comes from and, and want to be able to trace that back so that they know if there's an issue then they, then they can deal with that uh, and farmers need to improve and and increase their margins and so yeah I would say they're the the two main drivers. How do you think um, digitalization is going to change the industry in the future going forward? I think we're going to know more and more about um, the origin of the animal so we've got to listen to what the consumer wants so the consumer is you know with their limited budget if they're going to buy better quality but less of it then I want to buy a piece of steak without feeling guilty. So I might want to know a little bit more about where that animal has come from. Where's my steak come from? Is it produced in the most sustainable way? So they might want to know lots of information about the farm. And with digitization, we, you know, we can do that. And if that means that we can sell our product for a higher value compared to a piece of imported meat, then I think, you know, as I say, we, we don't want to be in the world of commodity products. We want to be in the world of of high value, high quality, super safe product. Mm. So that's where I think we want to sit. And that's where technology and that data flowing through the supply chain is going to be really important to help defend the industry. We've always, labelling on pack has always been really difficult. You've obviously got a limited amount of space and, and there's always been that question of what do people want to know and, and how is it best used? But actually, I think what what we in the UK whilst producing red meat we're not just producing red meat we're we're sort of selling the story that goes behind it and so yeah so so for for me if if digitization can can improve and do anything it's actually people can see dan's farm you know when he wants to and when he's not exhausted and stuff but they can see the good that he does here and it can sort of dispel myths of uh, great big factory farms and and unhappy animals and things like that and actually they can see that the benefits of of what he achieves on here um in in terms of creating a, a beautiful fantastic product but also producing the the wonderful environment around him food for thought Domestic cows, also known as taurine cows, are descendants of wild oxen known as aurochs, and they were first domesticated in southeast Turkey around 10,500 years ago. A second subspecies, sometimes called zebu cattle, were later domesticated in a separate event around 7,000 years ago in India. While the wild aurochs went extinct in 1627 due to overhunting and habitat loss, their genetics live on in a number of descendants, including water buffalo, wild yaks, and of course, domestic cows. We move now from beef to another type of food production, or another part of the supply train really, and that is sandwiches. And though we are sticking with Eastern England, we are moving from Cambridgeshire to Essex, and to Chelmsford in fact, and the home of Rainer Foods. I went to see Tom Holland from Rayner and also Jason Creswell from an organisation called Sweetbridge to talk about an initiative called the Digital Sandwich. But before that, I wanted to see real sandwiches being made. So this meant me donning a white coat, hairnet and other personal protective equipment, including wellies. What is with you and wellies? I love wearing <laughs> wellies. Now, they were Dunlop again, coincidentally, but not black this time, but a rather fetching white. Nice. Patrick Jackson, who works on product development at Rayner, gave me a tour. So Patrick, I'm looking at, is it five lines here you have work running? Yeah, we have five lines. Um, We've got line zero, line one, line two, line three, line four. Line zero is called line zero because that came at the end, so to avoid confusion. And what, what's, what it's individual line has got a different a different um, set of sandwiches being produced? Generally, yeah, as a rule of thumb, they have different varieties depending on what the product. Line one tends to be skillet, which is sort of the triangle-shaped ones you tend to see in supermarkets. Line two is our flu wrap products. So the ones you see in a clear packaging, that could be hot eats or rolls or paninis. Line three is our patient range. And line four is salad and wraps. And then line zero is a bit of everything. 
And how, what time does the production line start? You know, what's a, how, how often do you run each day? Production line starts at six in the morning. We've got guys in work in progress who start a lot more earlier. That Guys in good, then they'll start at three o'clock to make sure everything's ready. So we run from generally about six in the morning to around te- um, production is about eight or nine, ten o'clock in the night. So generally there's two shifts on a day. So there's pretty much sandwiches that run most of the day. So, so, so tell me about your role here, Patrick. So I am a part of the MPD team. So I help with development of new products and existing products. Uh, I was previously a member of our technical team, part of SID, so Science and Innovation Department. So that also entails a bit of ensuring food safety and quality is maintained. Uh, I've got to ask you, what is the most, uh, what do you make the most of? What's your most popular sandwich? Most popular sandwich? God, but I think it's a sandwich with chicken. And generally we make most of our, the greatest volumes is our patient feed. But I would say uh, generally a chicken sandwich is quite a popular one. Very, yeah. Now you said to me earlier that you, you know, 50 to 60, 70,000 sandwiches a day being produced here. Um, do you ever eat sandwiches yourself or do you just get fed up with them? Well, the beauty of it is there's so many different varieties. You can just mix and match it anyway. So you can change your fillings, put it in a toaster, put it not in a toaster, panini press. There's a now, lot of versatility. Now, come on then. What's your, what's your favourite, that fav- my favourite sandwich, Patrick? What's yours? Oh, now you put me on the spot. Oh, that's a good one. Well, my, my, it generally changes day to day, but I'm quite a, I'm quite a fan of um, turkey, bacon and egg. Turkey bacon, I've never had that come. Why, why turkey bacon and egg? I don't know, it's, it's just a bit different because it's a bit of a different one. I didn't think I'd like it to be honest to start with, but I, I just quite enjoy the taste of it. It's quite a nice one. You can have it at breakfast, lunch. It's a very versatile sandwich. So Patrick, we've come outside the sort of production line now to this different area, separate, very cold in here. What's, what goes on in here? So this is our work in progress area. So this is where all the ingredients from goods in to production come through so there's an element of mixes being made meats being sliced vegetables being sliced so basically everything that needs to be ready for production or prep for production is done in here and we seem to be out of the way here somebody's coming in with a big uh, a big silver trolley there what was that what would what, go in there um either chicken mayo or china mayo so we've got a giant mixer so we've got a giant holbert mixer which mixes the mayonnaise and the all the protein together Oh wow, I don't think I've ever seen that's I've ever seen so much tuna mayonnaise in my life. <laughs> we go for a lot of tuna mayonnaise. How much yeah, that's uh that's a huge amount. Yeah, I couldn't even tell you the volumes, but they're very as you can see they're very probably go for about three or four of those a day, if not more. Actually the smell in here is fantastic because of all the different flavours of all the different sandwiches, haven't you? And behind me here the uh, slicing the uh, slice of the how how thick is the ham being sliced there? Bean thick around 38 grams, 30 grams. It, var- it varies, so we can adjust the thickness. So. Now we've got this lovely beat for this machine here, uh, Patrick. What, is this, what does this machine do? So this machine is a metal detector. So all of our lines, so everything has to go through a metal detector before going out of the factory as a part of our, yeah, as a part of our way to ensure food safety is maintained. So once everything's packed, it goes through a metal detector and then it goes out. What, why detecting metal in sandwiches? So there's always that potential of um, bits of equipment, bits of foreign bodies from suppliers. Very rare, but we all have to make sure the safety of our customers is high priority. Is there anything else in terms of, sort of that double checking that you have to do here on the, on the production line? So on the production line, when they finish a variety, they check the cleaning to make sure everything's fully cleaned down for the next one check labels to make sure they're not using incorrect labels and they're using the next labels and none of the old ones are off. And uh, obviously coming in here today, I had to uh, get dressed up for the occasion. Could maybe you could describe to me what I'm wearing today and what, why I have to wear these clothes? So you're wearing a very fashionable pair of boot wellingtons, a white overall with a hood and a blue over, over sleeve and apron. So as we're a high care area, we need to ensure the food safety is maintained as much as possible so we control that by having everyone in freshly laundered personal protective equipment. Okay then Cindy, what's your my favourite sandwich? Um, smoked salmon and cream cheese I think. How about you? I do like a smoked salmon and cream cheese but I think I think probably something really simple for me, cheese, Branston pickle, crusty cob, 
no messing. Nice. And have, have we have we chanced upon the new feature here? We have my favourite standard. Maybe we should ask everyone what's my favourite sandwich. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> so. Rainer Foods is a third-generation family business that started as a cake maker. Now employing around 250 people, it produces 80,000 sandwiches a day for the private and public sector, including hospitals, schools, airlines and sport venues. So after my tour with Patrick and handing back my lovely white wellies, I sat down with Tom Hollands, Innovation and Technical Director at Rainer Foods, and also with Jason Creswell, Head of Innovation Management at Sweetbridge, an organisation building technologies that allows independent groups of businesses to work together and achieve economies of scale that would normally only be possible within large organisations. Both Rainer and Sweetbridge are two of the 19 partners in the Digital Sandwich, an Innovate UK funded project and part of the UKRI's Manufacturing Made Smarter Challenge. The aim of the Digital Sandwich project is to deliver a demonstrator of digitalised food supply chain using sandwich manufacturing as the use case. I started by asking Tom to tell me more about it. Digital Sandwich is a big project. It's almost a £10 million project with £4 million worth of government funding um, that's being provided through Innovate UK and the Made Smarter programme. And Digital Sandwich, in a nutshell, is, is a project to digitise our supply chain to allow valuable data to be shared both up and down and through generating that valuable data creates information that allows the different actors in the supply chain to make more meaningful informed decisions. Um, that's one part of the project. Another part of the project through deploying various emergent digital technologies allows us to connect up the supply chain in a way it's never been done before in terms of how liquidity flows through it, how data is accessed but not shared, how security of data is guaranteed within the system and how key pieces of information um, can be shared both up and down the supply chain without jeopardizing any privacy issues but providing you enough data to make a good decision. So it could be about a demand of raw material. It could be about reassurance required that the material has gone through the correct standards in order for it to be um, sold onto the market and could also help you investigate problems or non-conformities as well. It is a huge project. So given this is a, this is a physical product, we're talking about obviously a sandwich. So give me an example about what, what is being digitalized here. What, what, is, what, what information are you, are, you, are you, how is that working? Today we're able to record digitally products moving from one business to another business. But the problem is if you record um, a, a product moving from one business to another business, it doesn't actually allow you to have traceability for the end product you buy as a consumer. So to pick an example, let's imagine you have um, a loaf of ham, you know, a cheese and ham sandwich. Um, we know today digitally that a, a, a loaf of ham has moved from a ham producer to a sandwich factory. But that ham then enters the factory. What then happens? Well, it gets sliced into many, many slices of ham and then gets put into lots of different sandwiches. So the problem is, is what you need to do is you need to track what happens inside a business to know to have, create traceability, not just trace what's happening between businesses. So the digital sandwich, what we're doing is using um, IoT, etc., um, in order to actually track what's happening inside the business so you know how um, products are converted and once you know when products converted where those converted products how they're getting them mashed together to create new products that then actually gives you um, real-time traceability so this is this is tracing the actual ham in the sandwich exactly so you can tie a particular slice of ham in a particular sandwich to a particular loaf of ham from a particular that's a deaf question how how does that work then how do you do that with a with a with a degradable product how does that how does that work? i don't where, where's where's how do you actually what's the traceability of the of the piece of ham how does that work um a lot of it is by you're doing things um by batch so you'll take a, 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 a ham, you're slicing it, you're going, okay, this, this ham has gone into this batch 
or maybe the SAM's gone to two batches, it still then allows you to track those batches. What then happens is when you produce a sandwich at the end, each sandwich yeah, has an individual unique identifier. So you can then also track what happens to that sandwich in the future. Okay. So for example, you know, with, with uh, a sandwich here made, made at Rainer's, you know, one batch of sandwiches could end up maybe in multiple different mm -hmm. areas. One could go to the NHS, another one could go to a supermarket, wherever it may be. Um, when that sandwich leaves the factory, how's it managed? It could be that it goes to one place and it's in the cold chain, everything's great, and it goes to another place and the cold chain's broken. So when someone gets ill, you need to be able to trace what's happened. So actually being able to trace things on, you have this process where you're going from batch level to individual level to batch level to individual level. But as long as you know all of that, you can still trace things. So if I'm buying in Marks and Spencer's, north of England, maybe somewhere, and I'm at, on, on the shelf picking a sandwich, I'll be able to know where the particular ingredients came from and trace that back to source? Yeah. Yeah. You even know which side of the field Percy the pig or Doris the cow, yeah, was fed in. We're, we we have that level of traceability, um, and as as Jason was saying, we can we can trace that pig to turn into the leg, to turn into a a loaf, a log of ham, to turn into a sandwich, to turn into a batch that goes to a supermarket or a school or a hospital, and it's called a digital sandwich. Um, because it's layers of different data that we can that we can track and trace. It could be about related to the product, its provenance, the ingredients. It could be about the processes that it's going to. It could go to the temperatures. Can even go down to the finance layer as well. And how you know you've obviously you've been an organisation that's been around for thirty years and been very successful. What difference do you want this to make to you as a, as an organisation? What what differences will it make this this approach? This will give us unit level traceability which is not possible at the moment and through combining this would allow us to have a trait to have a one source of the truth and to be able to trace every single component every single customer at a at a touch of a button and if we can if we can capture this data we can capture any different types of data and that could mean very easily through the capability of the system we're designing that we can create a unique co2 footprint for each individual well, that's product. that's what I'm going to ask you. So well, in terms of obviously gathering all that data, but then how? What, what's the plan for using that? I mean, you talked there about, about, about CO2. Are there, are there any other, other ways in which it's going to dramatically change how you produce sandwiches? It will reduce something called the ball whip effect. Now, the ball whip effect is a very common phenomenon in any supply chain. Clarifications Corner. The Bulbiff effect describes how small fluctuations in demand at the retail level can cause progressively larger fluctuations in demand at the wholesale, distributor, manufacturer and raw material supplier levels. The effect is named after the physics involved in cracking a whip. And effectively what it is, is each different member of the supply chain keeping additional stock so they don't stock out. In 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 gen general in any retail environment, you get punished if you don't have the product on the shelf to sell because you lose the sale. But conversely, you don't really get punished if you have more than one product on the shelf because you'll sell it. However, food has a, a limited durability, and what this basically means is every single actor in the supply chain has to keep additional stock. So the retailer, the corner shop, the supermarket, they may order an extra ten percent. Now, their supplier that goes into them, the warehouse or the, the middleman, he might have to order 20% because he has to take account his own his own um, variability and his customer's one. And so by the time you get back to the primary producer, they could be growing 50% more food than what's actually required. And the world produces, out of the food it produces, it wastes exactly almost one third of the food. And this is associated purely because of the supply chain and all the inefficiencies. Um, the food industry across the world is based on massive economies of scale and wafer-thin margins, very thin margins. So in order to earn a profit, you need to produce a lot of food. It was as wafer-thin as the 38mm slice of ham, I think, in, 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 that, I saw, that I saw this morning. I mean, I, just if you want to forward, I want to, I want to ask you about the sort of where we are with the project so far. But if I... You know, if I came to visit you in five years' time, we went back into the production line. Would I witness anything differently as you're applying? You know, as you're gathering this data, would it would it look different and feel different? Yeah, I, th I think the important thing with any kind of digital transformation is if it's done well. 
on some level, things shouldn't look that different. If you want to go into a supply chain and you're going to expect everyone in the supply chain to suddenly change all their processes, what you'll find is they won't change. They, they will just simply reject it. So good digital transformation starts off by just recording what happens and giving a business real-time visibility on their operations. And with obviously in the case of the supply chain, real-time visibility about what happens across the supply chain. So the way you solve the bullwhip effect is by making information move quicker. It's, it's the lag of demand in a supermarket taking weeks to get down to the primary producer that produces this, this mismatch of supply and demand. So if you speed that process up, you, you get rid of that problem. So actually the, the biggest initial gains that you, you will get is just by digitizing what's already happening. Don't ask anyone to change anything. Let them keep the software they already use, let them keep the processes they already use, but give them more information. And that actually will be an, a massive, massive gain. Once you've got all that, you can then start thinking, okay, can we change our processes? Can we improve our processes? And you can certainly um, you know, gain um, gain additional stuff, but they're marginal gains compared to the initial um, boost you would get by just having that and the ability just to have information flowing in real time across the end-to-end supply chain. In terms of the innovation here, so um, you know how how innovative is this approach in you know, applying digital transformation in the food sector? You know it, how how innovative is it in the UK and also in global terms? I, I think where this, I mean, there's lots of digital transformation that's been done. Um, Lots of kind of projects you can point to, some that's successful, some are less successful. I think where this project is is um, is innovative is it's taking quite a holistic approach. In supply chain digitization up until today, you'll have someone that'll make a, a traceability platform or a sustainability platform or a payments platform. And what they're doing is they're breaking all the pieces apart. And what you often find when you have a platform that for a whole supply chain is often the return of investment for one piece of the puzzle alone is not enough to actually justify the project. And what you find is there's lots of projects out there, lots of pilots, none of them have scaled. Where this project is different is we're actually sitting there and recognizing that actually all these pieces fit together. And if you actually want to have something that can scale, that delivers enough value to each par party in the supply chain that they'd want to adopt it, it's by actually recognizing how all these things come together. So if you have, for example, um, real-time visibility of all your assets across the supply chain, you can use that to um, get financing, to reduce your financing costs. You can use the same data to actually have traceability. In fact, traceability will come for free. Don't, don't spend money on a separate traceability platform. Get traceability for free. And it's this kind of approach that makes this project, I think, a little bit different from others that I've I've seen and been involved with. I want to ask you about about where we are with the project. But in terms of you know the success of this, where else might it be easily applied within food? Are there any other examples where this you could take this approach? And you've got, you've got the sandwich, yeah. but any other obvious ones that you could do this with? I think. An important thing is, you know, every business has it, its processes, etc. And every every different part of uh, the food industry is different. Each industry is slightly different. But on some fundamental level, when you're looking at some of the, the, the core technologies, all supply chains actually kind of function in the same way. If you squint at it in a certain angle, they all function in the same way. What changes between industries often is um, the language used to describe the same thing. So what I find is that from a technological perspective, a lot of the technology that's being used here can be directly taken into other parts of the food industry and even different industries. Where things are different, where things really change, are the language you need to do to the sales process to engage people and get them involved. And of course, the actual user experience, the kind of apps that someone uses is highly specific to the role they have. So the apps, that's going to be different as you move through industries. The sales process, very different. But the core underlying technologies, a lot of the approaches around how to improve you know, days inventory outstanding, days of receivable outstanding, how to reduce the weighted average cost of capital, this is actually surprisingly similar across all industries. And where are we now with the project? You know, what, what's the, what progress has been made so far? So um, we've gone through, uh, well, First of all, the the, pa <laughs> the pandemic didn't help um, to start off with. Um, what it meant is um, a lot of the initial work had to be done remotely rather than within the factory. And so we've had to rejuggle the project or so to accommodate that. But yeah, all, all things being well, we're currently in, in the um, alpha um, testing phase at the moment. We have um, simulated product moving in and out of various processes and um, 
and 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 nodes within the supply chain, and that that's happening at the moment. And then the intention is to um, do the final demonstrator piece here on the factory and also our supply chain as well. So a market success will be you scan the product. They have each individual QR codes. Um, it's all permission based. So we're not giving any of our data away or any of our supply chain data away unless that person who owns that data has said, I'm happy for you to share that with the final consumer. Um, with all being well, the level of detail that we could reveal could be anything that's recorded on the platform. So it could be, go back far, this is the pig that went into this log of ham, this is where it was slaughtered, this is where the pig was fed, this is what the pig was fed on. And we can follow it all the way from farm to fork. We can we could be able to track all the different standards that we use to make the product safely. Um, we can track, of course, the distances, the temperature fluctuations from when it got turned into ham and how that temperature chill chain has gone all the way to the final to the final retailer outfit as well. And we can include pictures, delivery records, um, operating temperatures, process parameters, you name it. As long as we've digitized it within within our digital twin with permission, we can give access to that to the consumer. They probably won't want to see all this, but these are lovely points of differences. Yeah, and wouldn't it be nice that actually you can say that 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 ham and cheese sandwich, all those pigs have come from Essex, because in this case they have most definitely come from Essex. And all the all the grain has been grown locally in Malden that has fed that has fed these piggies as well. And the piggies have been gone to a slaughterhouse only twelve miles away from the farm and they've come back and we can show the the purity of that traceability all the way through the process. It's, it's funny that the, the, the very concept of a, of a supply chain is like a, a fiction from, from like management, business management schools. Um, the reality is, you know, that there is no supply chain. There, it's impossible to sit there and pick out a supply chain for a single product. What there is, there is a single global network of businesses. Every single business on this planet is connected to every other business. It's simply a question of how many degrees of separation. And if you were to look at any single product, including a, a product made from the same batch, if you actually, I'm looking at the watch you're wearing here, if you were to take that watch and take all the other watch made in that particular batch, and could, could, because no one can, actually trace back all the products, you'd find that every single watch in that batch has a different supply chain. That is the reality. And that's pretty much true for every product. Food for a thought. Now, in the UK, we love a sandwich. So much so that we eat 12 billion of them every single year. The sandwich itself is named after John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, who lived from 1718 to 1792. He started a craze for eating beef between two slices of bread, so he could continue eating without having to leave his gaming table. However, the use of some kind of bread or bread-like substance to lie under or under and over some other food long predates the 18th century and is found in numerous much older cultures worldwide. Now, that's where we leave part one of this episode of our Farm to Fork series. In part two, we discover if I managed to eat one of those sandwiches at Rainer Foods. Cindy and I reflect on what we learned from Tom and Jason and their digital sandwich. And we also learn what the Douglas Adams novel, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, has to do with it all. Plus, we'll hear interviews with quality expert and standards maker Amanda McCarthy on food safety management and the standard ISO 22000, and with academic and standards maker Alex Troutrims on the issue of modern slavery in the food sector and the standard BS 25700. So maybe have a quick break, grab a cup of tea or coffee and your own slice of cake, and then tuck into part two, available now in your podcast feed. You just heard a stripped media production.